Got to remember to turn that on. Thank you for the special music, Ingrid. That was a beautiful song. Have you ever read the uh, book of Exodus and Leviticus? Just read them through and and, uh, thought, that seems more technical than helpful. It's almost as though it's not really user-friendly. In fact, I would suggest that what you're reading is an instruction manual, kind of like the instruction manual that came with the air conditioner that I installed last week. And you know these things, they come from a different country, and so the language of that instruction manual can sometimes be a little difficult to to figure out. Anybody ever put together an IKEA furniture set? You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> and sometimes the, the pictures that are supposed to illustrate what you're supposed to do, they're uh, obscure, maybe a little bit different than what you're actually looking at. Some, maybe some details are left out. And that's what I found when I was installing this air conditioner. Lots of, well, gaps in the instructions. In fact, some of the steps assumed that I actually knew something about heating and air conditioning which I don't. And so I'm putting this thing together and I'm just at a loss for what I'm supposed to do. And we get to a point and there, there are no instructions for what to do. Not a single one. In, in fact, I, I did everything it said to do, everything that I could find on YouTube, everything I could, I, I even had somebody who knows HVAC um, look at it with me. And, and they were like, I don't know. And uh, so I prayed, and I had a, a, not a dream, but kind of like that, about five in the morning the next morning, and I thought, well, I'm going to try that. And I did, and it worked. So I'm going to say that the Lord led me <laughs> to fix that problem. Sometimes things are difficult to understand. And when you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you're reading through an instruction manual. And I think God intends for us to do some digging to figure out the language and and to put the pieces together and maybe do a little more work to try to figure out where it's going. I'll give you an example. This is from Leviticus 1, and it's about the sin offering. It says, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. See, I didn't make this up. It's an instruction manual. It even says so. When, you're, when you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or from your flock of sheep and goats. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Then slaughter the young bull in the Lord's presence, and Aaron's sons, the priests, will present the animal's blood by splattering it against all the sides of the altar that stands at the entrance of the tabernacle. This is informative, and it's intended to give some instructions about how Moses and Aaron and the the priests are supposed to interact with these problems. And he gives some additional instructions about when the sin offering should be applied and things like that. Uh, but, But here's what it lacks. It lacks the experiential part. Like if you were an Israelite at the time, what would this look like in your day-to-day life? And so today and next week, I want to start a series called Sanctuary Light that tells a story of a young boy named Asher who lives in the tents around this big tent, this sanctuary, and who experiences these services on a day-to-day basis. And the story is from a book called Sanctuary Light, written by a lady named Nicole Parker, a friend of mine. And uh, I'm using this, just so you know, by her permission. So I'm going to tell her story um, that she's written. But before we do, 
Today, we're going to be talking about the daily services and, and the regular services, I should say, because the sin offering comes in, in, in as well. But it's the daily morning and evening sacrifices that's the biggest part of this story. And so I want to read that from Exodus 29, verses 38 to 42. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering, therefore, throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. The story that I'm going to tell about Asher is uh, from his perspective. So it's maybe a little different sermon than I normally share. And hopefully, the kids will enjoy this as well, whatever their age might be. Asher opened up his eyes in the morning light, and he realized the rest of his family was asleep. He was kind of rolling around under his sheepskin bed cover, and he thought, maybe I'll help Zara. Zara was his sister, and usually they would go out first thing in the morning, and they'd collect manna for the food that day. And, uh, and he thought, maybe I'll, I'll do her work for her. And so he got up quietly, and he tiptoed out and right through the flap of the tent. And as he came through that flap, he, he saw in the dim morning light, the Shekinah light that shone from the sanctuary, out from under the, the, the uh, different um, coverings and layers, and, and even past the, the, the tent that surrounded her, the gate that surrounded the uh, tabernacle there. They called that big tent in the middle of the camp the sanctuary. Asher grabbed a basket and, uh, and quickly went to the acacia grove where he found the best places for finding manna. And he began scooping up these clumps of manna, careful not to pick up the sand. He'd done that once. And uh, it wasn't very pleasant to eat the manna cakes that had the sand in They were kind of gritty. So he was very careful out in that cool morning air, he met Eru. Eru was a friend that he'd known ever since Egypt. And Eru said, uh, Ela and I are going out to, to dig a, uh, a, a swimming hole. And we've already started. Do you want to come help us? But Asher couldn't. He had responsibilities. And so he said, no, I, I have to take the sheep out to graze. Back at the tent, Mom had already started a fire, and so he put down the manna and raced inside to wake Zara up. And together, they, they came, uh, came out and, and rushed over to where the sheep pen was. They loved to watch the sheep. And most of the sheep were just standing around and, and uh, you know, kind of lazy in the morning. But there were two little lambs that they loved to watch. And they would bound up and down and all around. The one was cotton. And that was Asher's lamb. Cotton was pure white with uh, fluffy wool. And then the other was Daisy, and that was, that was uh, Zara's lamb. And Daisy was black and white and, um, and, and really soft. And it's about that time, as they're watching the sheep, that they heard a ram's horn being blown from the sanctuary. It was, it was that time when all of the, the children of Israel would recognize 
that at the sanctuary they were doing an offering, the morning offering. Asher and Zara knew exactly what they were supposed to do, and they raced back to the front of the tent where mom was cooking the meal, and together the four of them knelt and they prayed. We thank you for your love and forgiveness, Papa began. You've brought us out of Egypt and given us a new life here in the wilderness. Thank you for the manna before us and for the water flowing from the rock, and especially thank you for the sacrifice this morning that washes away all our sins so we we may live confidently today in the light of your presence. After cleaning up um, from breakfast, Asher and Zara asked mom, can we go play? And she said, sure, it's um, getting time where you need to take the sheep out, but you can play for about an hour. And so off they went to the, to the river. And they're kind of um, coming close to the river, and Asher sees the rock where the water is coming out, and he shivers with awe as he remembers that time when the water happened, when it started. They, they had been told by God to stop right where they were, but there wasn't any water source nearby, and it, was, it wasn't very long before the children of Israel started to get uh, thirsty, and they complained a bit. Well, Moses called them together around this rock, and then he hit the rock, and water came pouring out, and it was like lots of water, plenty of water, not just for cooking and for drinking, but water to wash in and water to play in. And he and Zara had been building a little village near the water. And in a secluded spot, past some acacia bushes. And, uh, and so they, they started pushing through the bushes to get to this secluded spot. And, and they saw Eru and Asher there, uh, Eru and, and Elah there. And as soon as they saw him, they jumped up and ran past them. And Zara noticed that her village had been trampled and destroyed. You broke our houses, come back here, Asher cried out. But they didn't come back. Asher turned to console his sister. We can rebuild them. They didn't break this house. But Zara, she couldn't help it. She was sobbing. She gathered some twigs and she said, look, they, they, broke, they broke my sheep pen. It's ruined. Asher's heart began to smolder with anger. All their hard work, all the stuff they'd, they'd put their effort into was destroyed. And he, he paced down to the river and then back up to where Zara was. Well, we might as well go home, he said. And it was as he was motioning for Zara that he, he noticed something shiny in the bushes. He stooped down to pick it up and both he and Zara realized immediately that it was Eru's knife. The knives weren't very common in the Israelite camp at that time. This was a gift that uh, somebody had... Uh, that, that, um, Eru's uncle had given him, and Eru's uncle had gotten it from the people that um, he had worked for, had been a slave under in Egypt, when they'd given all those gifts to, to Israel as they left. It was pretty uncommon to have a knife. And so when he picked it up, Zara said, we should return it to Eru. But Asher said, let's keep it, for, for now anyway. Zara was shocked, and she said, isn't that stealing? Well, didn't they steal our village, Asher said, as he stomped away without getting a reply. His anger burned all that day. As he was watching the sheep and, and caring for them, he, he started whittling on sticks, trying to um, satisfy his desire to destroy something. And then as the day wore on, he started to whittle something useful. He, he decided he would make a spindle for thread to be wound around. And, uh, and then he started to think, oh, this, this knife could be really useful. Um, and then he said to himself, 
After Eru destroyed our village, I deserve this knife. Asher returned home that evening, brought the sheep in, and, and as the sheep were coming in and, and he was getting close to the encampment, he heard the, the trumpet sound. And instinctively, he, he fell to the ground on his knees to pray. But before a word could come out of his mouth, he thought about that knife. He opened up his hand and he saw that knife in his hand and, and his mind flashed to those Ten Commandments stones that were in the sanctuary right under the mercy seat, that glorious mercy seat. There's these smooth tablets with all of these Ten Commandments written there illustrating and, and, and communicating the holiness of God's law that said, you shall not steal. Kneeling there in the dust, Asher heard that last ringing blast of the ram's horn trumpet, and he realized the blood that covers, the blood only recovers repented and confessed sins. If I keep this knife, my sins won't be covered. At the tent, Asher paused outside. He glanced around, and then he quickly knelt down on his knees, dug a hole in the dirt, put the knife there, covered it back with soil and, and a rock on top, and, and then took the sheep to the sheep pen. And as the sheep were going in, he, he nuzzled, nuzzled um, uh, Cotton's head with his hand, a trembling hand, and he realized he had just stolen Eru's knife. Did you take Eru's knife back? Zara asked as soon as he got into the, the tent, and Mama's watching as she's preparing supper, and Asher knew that he was in trouble. I, uh, I, I saw him while I was out herding the sheep, so I gave it to him then, Asher said. He was surprised at his boldness. He had just intentionally lied, breaking another one of the Ten Commandments. He turned quickly as that horror flashed through his heart. He needed a distraction. And so he, he grabbed something from near his bed, uh, some rocks that he'd been collecting. And he said, Zara, look, I found these pretty pebbles the other day and thought we could use them in our village. Do you want to start build, rebuilding it again? Well, Mama had asked Asher that evening to wind some thread around a spindle. And as he was winding that thread, he thought about the spindle he'd been carving. And he realized he was pretty proud of that little spindle that he was working on, but he couldn't share it with anybody because if he did, they'd know he'd had a knife. And Eru would know that he had a knife. Keeping that knife might be harder than I thought, he pondered. At supper, Zara asked uh, Papa, why do we sacrifice lambs? I don't understand why. And why would Yahweh want us to want anything to die? Well, that's a good question, Zara, especially since we, we can't go out and buy lambs from the Egyptian markets anymore. Um, of course, we don't sacrifice lambs all that often, only when we engage in willful sins. And then he thought, some sins can't even be covered by the sacrifice. There are three types of sins, he continued. He said, there are small sins like impatience and unkindness that the morning and evening sacrifice covers. But then there are intentional sins. When we break God's law on purpose, they require a sin offering. And then there are sins that are so harmful to the community that even the sin offering doesn't completely deal with the problem. Zara looked confused. 
And then mama piped up. There's no such thing as a small sin, Zara. All sin starts with things that we might consider small, things like pride and unbelief. Those two sins especially lead to all kinds of bad thoughts and sinful behaviors. But some sins are really, really damaging to relationships, allowing serious sins like adultery or murder to continue in our camp without severe penalty would lead to tremendous wickedness. And and we wouldn't even feel safe in our own tents if we didn't deal with murderers. And remember, we we don't have prisons like they had back in Egypt. Someday, Papa added, when the Messiah comes, his sacrifice will be big enough to cover all of those terrible sins. Yahweh can forgive any sin if the sinner repents. That makes sense, Zara replied as she broke off a piece of manna cake. But why does Yahweh require the morning and evening sacrifices? It seems like such a waste to kill so many animals. Her face puckered as she, answered, as she asked the question. Mama knelt down beside her. Zara, even when we don't willfully break God's Ten Commandments, we're still sinners, and we, we desperately need God's grace to cover us. We, we selfishly take the biggest manna cake, or we, um, we sometimes have carelessness in our words that hurt other people. Our thoughts wander to things that they shouldn't be. Those aren't reflections of loving kindness or the character of Yahweh. And Poppy quickly pointed out, All sin begins with destroying relationship. That's really what sin means, is breaking relationship. And if we break relationship with Yahweh, it inevitably leads to breaking relationship with other people too. So the morning and evening sacrifices are to remind us, no matter how good we behave, that we still need grace to cover us every day, Zara asked. Asher thought about that question. And, and he didn't sleep very well that night. In, in past times when he had a hard time sleeping, he would just go to the tent flap and open it up and peer at the, at the light coming from the tabernacle. But tonight, thinking about the sanctuary just made him feel all icky inside. The sun was setting the next day when Asher climbed down to the rocks to a favorite spot, a waterfall where he liked to get the, the water jugs filled up. He heard a voice behind him saying, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was yours, Eru said. I was chasing Elah when I saw your village and he'd already trampled it and I was running too fast to stop. And well, it was really great. Can, Can I help you rebuild it? Asher turned back to the waterfall, pretending to continue to fill his his water jug. It's okay, he mumbled. But why did you run away? Well, I just panicked. Uh, We were racing to the swimming hole, and I I did come back to see what what, what it was that I had trampled, and and I wanted to apologize, but you weren't there when I came back. I forgive you, Asher said. Thanks for being my friend, Eru smiled in relief. Later that night, Asher burrowed beneath his sheepskin, and he thought, how can I do this to my friend? Shame washed over him. The, 
Their families had been friends for a long time. He had lived nearby him in Egypt. And when they went, uh, were leaving Egypt, they shared an ox cart with their family belongings together. And when they were going through the, the, the path in the river, I mean, the, in the Red Sea that God had made, they, they both were poking the walls of water that were on either side of the path. They were best friends. And, and now he was choosing a knife over his friendship. The next morning, Asher told Zara about Eru's apology, and she had some things to say about it. How do you think he's, do you think he's really sorry? Why did they run away? It's just not fair. They should be punished. Mama overheard this whole conversation. If anything, she added, you both have sinned a greater sin yourselves. All day, the last couple of days, you were thinking about, thinking evil about Eru and Elah. You've resented them and been unfaithful friends to them. While it's true they should be more careful and shouldn't have run away, you also need to confess your sin of bitterness and evil assumptions so you can be covered by the morning and evening sacrifices. Mama ran her fingers over Asher's back. We all need some grace. Because of the sanctuary service, we are, all, we are forgiven. Yahweh's grace covers our sins. Oh, if my parents only knew, Asher thought, they'd be so sad. I've taken Eru's knife and I haven't repented. Well, a few weeks went by. Asher had found a better hiding spot for the knife. He, he realized that uh, when he uh, had the, the knife near the tent, that people, especially Zara, might see him kneeling down to pick it up and ask too many questions. And so he moved it to a, a, a edge of the camp where there's an acacia bush and, and uh, he put it under a flat rock so nobody would find it. Interestingly, though, he realized he was, it was so easy for him to steal the knife that even putting it out there didn't make him uh, at peace because he worried that somebody else might steal it from him. Being a thief and a liar himself, he kind of assumed other people were thieves and liars too. He'd been working on a, a carving of a lamb, a little figurine, and, and he was sitting on a rock one day when Cotton and Daisy came bounding up to him. And he was carving and whittling and carving, and it was really starting to turn out nice. He was pretty proud of his little figurine. Um, the, the lambs settled down and laid down near the rock, and, and he kept whittling and brushing the, the uh, shavings off. And Well, that afternoon slipped away quickly. Asher tucked the knife and the figurine into the folds of his robe, and he brought the herd back to camp. <coughs> He hid the knife there at the edge of camp under the flat rock by that bush. And, and then he gathered a few sticks, which is what he should have been doing the whole time, um, but he, he hadn't. With the sheep in their pen, Asher slipped through the curtain, through the, the flap in the tent, and, uh, and laid down on his bedroll and, and listened to Zara and Mama as they were kneading the manna uh, into cakes. I know the Day of Atonement is the most important day of the entire year, Zara said, but what does atonement mean, Mama? Well, Zara, how do I make manna cakes? Well, you mix uh, water or milk with the manna, and, and then you get manna cakes. <laughs> yeah, but, but mixing takes some work, doesn't it? You have to really press on those little balls of manna with the water in order to get them uh, to, to soften up and turn into dough. And Asher heard some splashing of water as, as Mama 
illustrated what she was telling Zara. When we mix the water and the manna, we're practicing atonement. We make two into one. No longer are they separated. So the day of atonement is about becoming one with Yahweh, Zara puzzled. But, but why a blood sacrifice? Well, breaking the law breaks our relationship with Yahweh, the source of life. Separating from him would mean our death. So Yahweh provides a substitute. The Messiah will one day give his blood in our place. Our union with God is possible because it's restored through Jesus' death or through the Messiah's death. Death opens the opportunity for new life. Hmm, Zara wrinkled her face. I still don't really understand. <laughs> well, that's okay, Mama replied. I'm sure that m- there's not many of us that really do understand everything about atonement. So don't feel bad. And I think that's kind of the way that God intended. Uh, that's why he gave us the sanctuary so that we could think about this and, and try to understand it more. And that's why he told us that we should think about it when we get up and when we make our food and when we wash our dishes and when we work and when we go to bed, we should be thinking about this. And, and all the services are kind of complicated, but really the whole point is pretty simple. Everything about the sanctuary teaches us to become one with Yahweh and with one another in love. That last thought made Asher squirm as he listened. One with Yahweh and with one another in love. It rang in Asher's mind as he lay there on his sheepskin bed. He longed to sense that oneness again. And, and that weight of, of his sin really weighed down on him at that moment. And he realized that he had... In stealing the knife, he had not just broken his relationship with Yahweh, he had broken his relationship with Eru. I mean, Eru had been asking him to come to the water, um, to, to the swimming hole that they had made, and, and he kept making excuses because he didn't want Zara to be reminded about the knife and, and to ask Eru about it, and then he'd be exposed. And, and he'd been hiding from Zara and lying to her, and he'd been hiding from his mom and dad and, hiding and, and lying to them. It really had broken all of his relationships. After supper that evening, Papa sat down beside Asher near the dying embers of the fire they'd used to cook their supper. Mama and and Zara had gone off to the river to, to bathe, and Papa turned to Asher and he said, Asher, I've noticed you haven't brought much firewood home lately. What have you been doing out there while you're herding sheep? Asher's face felt flushed and hot, and he was really glad that it was pretty dark at the time. Well, I'll bring home more, Papa. I'm, I'm sorry, I guess I've been distracted, he said. Is there anything you want to tell me? Papa asked, knowingly. Asher could see Papa's concerned face in the glow from the sanctuary, and he fought the desire to tell the truth. I, uh, well, I, I guess not. Silently, Papa placed some curled pieces of carved wood on the ground, some shavings, I found these in Cotton's wool today, he said. Wouldn't, they wouldn't have anything to do with Eru's lost knife, would they? Asher got mad at himself for having carved over the sheeps, while they, while, over the lambs while they were sleeping there. But then he looked in his father's eyes, and he saw this deep disappointment, and tears began to roll down his cheeks. Guilt and shame washed over Asher, and... The whole story spilled out. 
and Papa brought Asher into his lap as he sobbed. When the last tears were gone, there was that weight was lifted and he felt so much better. But then he, he said, I'm going to get the knife and I'm going to take it to Eru first thing in the morning. I can imagine how relieved he's going to be. But Papa, he whispered into his ear quietly. He said, I'm afraid I'm going to need to go with you. You see, sin breaks trust. And it's going to be a while and it's going to take some work for you to build trust again. The next morning was the worst morning in Asher's life. He woke up and then realized what was going to happen that day. He lay there frozen, grief starting to pour over his heart. Papa knelt by his bed, come my son, let's go. And together in the pre-dawn, barely getting light hours of the morning, they trudged towards that acacia bush. And there, Asher knelt and took the rock off and found that knife and the little figurine. And then he buried his head in his father's chest. I'm so sorry, Papa. He sobbed. His father held him close for a moment, and then they plodded together towards Eru's tent. Oh, the look of shock on Eru's face that Asher had taken his knife and kept it for so long, it, it seared Asher's heart and his soul. With sorrowing hearts, he and his father strode back to their tent. Breakfast just didn't seem appetizing at all. And as quickly as he could, he slipped to the sheep pen. And he buried his head in cotton's wool. And it was at that time that he heard the sound of that trumpet calling. The morning sacrifice was here. After their family prayer time, he and Papa slipped a rope around cotton's woolly neck. And cotton was happy to go along with them, just as happy and cheerful as he ever was. But Asher couldn't stop the tears rolling down his face. At the sanctuary... Asher and Papa entered through the, the, the doorway, the tent uh, flap that was there, um, and, and they saw the altar of sacrifice towering over them, uh, a sacrifice still smoldering at the center of the altar. Papa, in hushed tones, explained what was going on, and a priest led them to a table near the entrance. Asher, with sobs, put his hands on the warm, soft wool of Cotton's head, and he confessed his sin. Despite the devastating grief of saying goodbye to his beloved pet, Asher finally sensed a, a relief, not just the relief of being known, but a relief of being covered that dreadful heaviness of guilt that had weighed on him every day since he had taken that knife, um, that sin would no longer burden his heart. And, and he realized by faith something he hadn't really understood before, that because of this death, he wouldn't have to die. He wouldn't have to bear the consequences of his sin. Papa's strong hand closed over Asher's small one on the hilt of the knife. And in one stroke, 
It was done. The priest held a bowl under the cotton's throat to catch the blood. He would take that blood and he would sprinkle some of it on the corners of the altar of burnt offering. And then he might take some of it and go into the, the holy place later and sprinkle it on the, on the, um, the dirt there in front, of the, the, um, in front of the veil that stands right before the throne of God. The priest carved the lamb put part of it, most of it, onto the altar of burnt offering, but kept a little piece of it for himself. A symbol that he, like the Messiah, would, would take in the sin, symbolically, of Asher. Cotton was gone. His small body burned to ashes. Asher's sin had been taken away, but he, he knew that his sin, his sin still remained in a symbolic way. It still remained in the blood on the sanctuary, and it still remained in the blood before the, 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 the mercy seat. And it would be there until that day of atonement, which thankfully wouldn't be long in coming. We've looked at the first half of a story of Asher's life, a story, a story that dealt with sin, a sin that he had cherished for some time, refusing to repent, refusing to confess. And, and it reminds me of our look at 1 John. Do you remember that, that first chapter in 1 John where we talked about hiding? Every time we hold on to sin, we hide from somebody. We hide from God, we hide from others. And, and the solution is to confess. It took Asher a long time. In fact, he had to be found out before he confessed. Oh, that we don't wait that long. <laughs> that we don't wait. I mean, can you imagine if he had held on to that knife for just one day <laughs> and then given it back? It would have been a whole different story. But no, he kept it and he held on to it. And our sins, we can do that sometimes. Intentionally, rebelliously choosing to violate God's law. I am so thankful, though, that there's that morning and evening sacrifice. And Jesus, the New Testament tells us, is that morning and evening sacrifice. And you and I, we don't have to sacrifice every single day. <laughs> Jesus' blood covers our sins. And so when we're thoughtless in our words, when we're careless in how we relate to somebody, when, when we make mistakes, when we are, are rude or unkind, um, Jesus' blood covers us. And so every day, in the morning and in the evening, the Bible encourages us to lay our, our sins before Jesus and to say, Lord, please forgive me for my carelessness, for my unkindness. And his blood covers us. And, and his blood covers us even when we make willful choices to sin, when we say, I'm going to violate God's law. He is, his blood is powerful enough to cover those sins too. And unlike Asher, we don't take a lamb and kill it. But if we don't recognize the cost of our forgiveness, we may be tempted to be careless with it. And so it's recommended for you and me that we take some time when we confess our sins, that we take some time and we think about what it cost Jesus. The, the sacrifice that he made, the sacrifice in blood that he made so that we can be forgiven. Now, there's those, those other kinds of sins. Some sins are really quite severe. If you murder somebody, Jesus will forgive you, but there's still going to be consequences, aren't there? 
And the same is true um, if you look at some sins that, that come into the church. Maybe it's not a civil um, person, you know, like a policeman that's going to take you to prison, but, but there are consequences to some, some choices that harm the community. And Paul encourages the church to practice something called discipline, where we create some additional um, consequences to sins that impact our church community. Those are appropriate, necessary things. Uh, but wonderfully, Jesus can cover those sins too. His sacrifice can give us peace and take away our guilt and provide life. Next week, we're going to look at that, the other service, not the regular daily services, but the, the um, monthly and yearly services of the sanctuary. We're going to look at how God plans to eliminate sin completely. That's going to be a fun second half to this story. And I want to tell something for the kids. I have a gift for you if you come next week. So make sure to come and hear the second half of the story. And if you want a gift, I think I might have enough for more than just the kids, depending on how many are there. Um, So if you want a gift, um, I'll give you that opportunity next week. Let's 